0: Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 16? If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you. Just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And the last few weeks in our study in John's Gospel, we have been focusing on Jesus' final words to his disciples before his crucifixion. His farewell address takes up chapters 13 through 16. We have been studying that at length in the last few weeks, and uh, their hearts were troubled. Uh, As you come to the 14th chapter, uh, it's obvious their hearts were troubled. Why? Because he had said earlier in the evening that he was going to go away. He was going to be leaving them, and they couldn't follow him. In saying that, he was, in essence, telling them that, that they would have to carry on the work without him, that just because he was going away didn't mean the work of the kingdom was going to stop. And, of course, upon hearing this, their hearts were immediately gripped with fear. I mean, how could they ever carry on the vital work of spreading the gospel and building God's God's kingdom on the earth without Jesus being with them? So, of course, Jesus, sensing their troubled hearts, spends most of the 14th chapter comforting and reassuring them. And the main way the Lord did that, the main way he encouraged his disciples that evening was by telling them that, look, I'm going away." But I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. I'm going to send back to you another helper, the Holy Holy Spirit, and he will abide with you forever. You can read about that in chapter 14, verses 15 through 18. Now, based on this section, as we come to chapter 16, he's still kind of talking to them about um, really his final words to them before the cross to encourage them and uh, give them some promises to prepare them. For the difficult days that were coming, especially after he returned back to his father. So when you come, we come to chapter 16, uh, we're focusing right now on verses 5 to 15. And um, I just felt led uh, by the Lord to do a series which I've entitled The Ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the main reason for this, this series is that I think there's a real lack of teaching with regard to the Holy Spirit in churches today. Not that the Holy Spirit is never mentioned from pulpits. Pastors give the Holy Spirit lip service all the time. But I don't think a lot of pastors are opening the Bible and and taking their congregations through passages that really talk about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. When you don't do that, what happens is people kind of formulate their own opinions based on their feelings. So a lot of churches pass down to their kids uh, things about the Spirit which they learn from their parents uh, but not from really the Bible, just from feelings and experiences. And that has caused a lot of Christians to kind of go off, uh, they kind of go astray with regard to the ministry and all of the Holy Spirit. Let me just say this, and I said this last week, let me repeat it. I believe that the effectiveness, the fruitfulness, and the overall dynamic and victory that we as Christians will experience in the Christian life, listen, is directly proportionate to how well you know and understand the person and work of the Holy Spirit and how much you honor the Holy Spirit by submitting your life to him. He's in control, not us. He doesn't help us in the sense that, you know, we are the master, he's the servant. No, no, we follow him. We are to, uh, to be led by him. And that's a very important thing that we understand. And therefore, as we said last week, Uh, This could be one of the most important studies we've ever undertaken, because everything hinges on our understanding of the Holy Spirit, who's our comforter, he's our guide, he's our teacher, he's our helper, Uh, he's the one who who empowers us for ministry, and so it's all wrapped up in who he is and the ministry he has uh, in this world. So, who is the Holy Spirit? We've already talked about this, we studied this a little bit last week. Uh, He's God. Uh, the third person of the Trinity, Jesus said, I'm going away, but I'm going to send back to you another helper. The Greek word he used for another is alas, which means another of exactly the same kind. The Holy Spirit is not another God. He's God in a different form. Jesus took on a physical body when he was incarnated on the earth, and now he was going to go uh, at this point in in the evening telling them he was going back to the Father, but he was going to send back uh, another helper, the Spirit of God. As a spirit, he could indwell every believer, uh, eventually uh, on the face of the uh, of the planet, and therefore the body of Christ could be spread out all over the world at one point. Which today, of course, it is. Back in Jesus' day, roughly just Israel was the area concentrated with the disciples of Christ, but they eventually went out and did cover all the world: Samaria and uh, you said Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the of the earth. Well, we're in that face right now so the gospel has gone out into all the world but um, the holy spirit is not an essence he's not like electricity he's a person he is god the spirit third person of the trinity and we we need to understand that i just read you an article last week uh taken by gallup where a lot of young professing christians think the spirit of god is not a real person he's an essence he's a, a projection of god but he's not a real person That's heresy. We need to understand the Spirit of God is a person. All personal pronouns are used to describe him. You don't use personal pronouns to talk about electricity. Uh, He's a living person, okay? God the Spirit. All right, what is his ministry? What is his ministry? Well, uh, it differs. So what do you mean? Well, it differs to whom he is ministering to. His ministry to unbelievers, of course, is different from his ministry to believers in Christ. And so because Jesus starts out with the ministry of the Holy Spirit to unbelievers, that's where we picked it up. So look at verse 5 of John 16, where Jesus said, But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me where are you going, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. I'm going away, you can't go with me. Their hearts were deeply sorrowful and troubled. Verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Now, we're still reviewing from last week a little bit. The key word in that passage is convict. Convict. It's a Greek word that means to bring delight, to expose, to refute, or to convince. All right? Look, conviction is God's way of showing people, and the focus is unbelievers. Conviction of the Holy Spirit is God's way of revealing to men and women who are unbelievers that they're sinners. If a person doesn't see themselves as a sinner, they won't see their need for a Savior, which means they'll never turn to Jesus to save them. So this is where it starts. Now, Jesus promised that when he ascended back to his Father, he would send the Holy Spirit into the world. That, of course, happened on the Feast of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And when he has come, Jesus said he will convict the world the world of unbelievers of three things of sin of righteousness and of judgment now we said last week that as christians we tend to read the bible and everything just we just take it to ourselves and of course a lot of it is directed to us because we're christians but there are passages that are not directed to us classic example is the old testament i mean some of that stuff transcends the old covenant and applies to us in the new covenant, right? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face, pray, turn from their wicked ways, I will hear their person from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. I think that applies to Christians living today. But not all of it does. But when we read this in, in John 16, remember, uh, Jesus is talking uh, about unbelievers that the Holy Spirit would convict. And he goes on to tell us, and he explains to us uh, what he further means, because we want to take that and apply directly to us. He's going to convict me of my sins. He's going to convict me of my lack of righteousness. He's going to convict me of coming judgment in some way. It's not directed to us. And thankfully, Jesus goes on to explain that, uh, what he meant by further revealing to us that all of this conviction of the Spirit has himself, Jesus, as the focus. And again, uh, it's directed at unbelievers. So let's look at the first one. Verse 8, when he comes, the Spirit of God, he will convict the world, first of all, of sin. Verse 9, of sin because they do not believe in me. Jesus didn't say that the Holy Spirit would convict the people of this world of all their sins, plural. As in lying, cheating, stealing, etc. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would convict unbelievers of sin, singular, because they do not believe in me, verse 9 tells us. The Holy Spirit is convicting the people of this world of one sin in particular. And that is the sin of not believing in Jesus Christ for salvation. Now, please understand, it is unbelief that condemns a person to help, not the committing of individual sins, plural. Most people don't know what God has clearly said on this subject. Why? Because they either don't read the Bible or they don't, they don't attend a church at all, or they attend a church that doesn't really get into this stuff. Okay, When you teach verse by verse, you have to hit the whole counsel of God that's why we do it. Uh, We just go verse by verse. That way you can't blame me uh, for teaching something that's stepping your toes as if somebody called me and said, hey, so-and-so is going to be there tomorrow. Will you please teach on this topic? (laughs) Nobody's ever done that, and if they did, I wouldn't listen anyways. (laughs) We're just going verse by verse, right? The old saying goes, you know, If you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one who yipes is probably the one that got hit. I'm just lobbing these things out there. If you get nailed by the Holy Spirit, you understand it's God who did it, not me. Okay? Take it to heart, right? But most people don't clearly understand, excuse me, don't understand what God has clearly said on this subject. Listen, how it isn't how good they are or how bad they are that determines whether they make it into heaven or spend eternity in hell, their sins, plural, are not the determining factor. What determines whether a person makes it into heaven or is sent to hell is whether they accept or reject Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now you're thinking, well, so what are you saying, Pastor? That individual sins like lying and stealing, committing adultery, even murder, but they don't matter to God? Of course they matter. Of course they matter to God. And they should definitely matter to every unbeliever in this world. But the Bible teaches that our good deeds don't get us into heaven nor do our bad deeds send us to hell. That's true. But that doesn't mean our sins, plural, are unimportant to God or they have no effect on our lives. Well, how so? Well, look, a person who winds up in heaven is a person who's accepted Christ as their Savior. Plain and simple. Once you accept Christ as your Savior, then all the things you do for God to serve Him, all of those things determine your degree of reward in heaven. Just like if a person winds up going to hell. It it isn't all their sins that sent them there. It's the fact that they rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior. But if they reject Christ as their Savior, then all the sins they've committed over the course of their life will determine their degree of punishment in hell. There are degrees of punishment in hell. Jesus said that servant that didn't know his master's will and didn't do it will be beaten with a few stripes. That servant that did know his master's will and didn't do it will be beaten with many stripes. There are degrees of punishment in hell based on how many sins you've committed over the course of your life. The good news is you, you could be the worst sinner in the world if you receive Christ right now. Your sins are washed away. Because it's all about faith. That's what allows you to come into God's kingdom. All right. So we pick it up this morning with the second thing the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of. Uh, Again, verse 8, when he has come, you will convict the world of sin and of righteousness. As we said last time, again, when we read this, we want to apply it to ourselves. In other words, we read this as the Holy Spirit is going to convict me as a Christian of my lack of righteousness. What does that mean? Well, usually my lack of walking in the Spirit from day to day, and living carnally. Which a lot of Christians do, right? Now, I'm not saying the Holy Spirit is not going to deal with you on the fact that you're living carnally. That's not the point of the passage, though. Right now, this is being directed at unbelievers and how the Holy Spirit is going to convict them of righteousness. And here we see Jesus going on to explain. He says in verse 10, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Is that clear? Because if it is, you're better than me. When I read that for the first time, I'm like, well, Lord, I know you're clarifying, but I still don't get it. What, what does that mean? The Holy Spirit is going to convict the world. It seems still a little ambiguous. Convict the world of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. What does that mean exactly? Okay, fair enough. One author put it this way, "Said I the righteousness here is that which belongs to Jesus Christ by nature, as the Holy Son of God. This is the flip side of the previous point. Not only does the Spirit convict unbelievers of their sin, but also of the necessity of having the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. When their wickedness is compared to his sinless holiness, their sin is seen more truly for the detestable evil that it is. And the sinner is brought face to face with the impossibility of salvation by any effort, work, or achievement on their part, end quote. Well, folks, that's the gospel. That we can't get into heaven by our works of righteousness. It's by our faith in Christ. We all know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not the result of anything we do, lest any should boast. God doesn't want boasters in heaven. I belong here. You should have saw what I used to, how I used to serve the Lord. Uh, no, God doesn't want that. It's nauseating. It's disgusting. Uh, the only praise in heaven is going to be praise for him. Because he did it all. People, you know, People sometimes ask me, did, did I do anything towards my salvation? Yeah, of course. What? You provided the sin. And that's it. <laughs> you provided the sin. Jesus did everything else, right? And yet when it comes to the people of this world in general, unbelievers, Well, as the writer said in Proverbs 20, verse 6, most everyone proclaims each his own goodness. Almost everybody proclaims each their own goodness. In other words, almost everybody feels they're a good person. And because of it, they believe God will accept them them into heaven when they die. Because we're all good. Pretty much everybody thinks they're a good person, right? You know, early in Jesus' ministry, uh, he said something to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount that must have blown their minds. Because, again, get Jewish, okay? He said in Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness, listen, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. If anybody could have gotten to heaven by works of righteousness, it would have been the scribes and Pharisees. you got to understand, these guys devoted their whole lives... To keeping the law down to the smallest detail. When I say down to the smallest detail, I mean they even tied the seeds from their herb gardens. Can you imagine that? Shake out the little mustard thing, and nine for me, and one seed for God. That's how meticulous they were. And because of it, there was a, a saying that was going around in those days, uh, in Jesus' day, uh, that if the Jews said this, if only two people made it into heaven. One will be a scribe and the other will be a Pharisee because everyone thought they were the holiest people around. We all know that Paul the Apostle at one time was a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee, right? And in describing his life before he met Jesus, he said in Philippians, I'm going to read it to you. You can write down the reference. I'll read it to you, the NLT 2nd edition. All right, But here's what Paul said about himself. Uh, he said in Philippians 3, verse 5, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, Christians. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Well, he thought that for many years, that he kept the law perfectly. But then God opened Paul's eyes. at this time was Saul of Tarsus he opened his eyes to the fact that keeping the law or at least trying to keep it because nobody ever kept it except for Jesus perfectly but at one point God opened Saul's eyes to realize that the law was never given by God to make a person righteous it couldn't okay think about the law 613 commandments boil it down to the 10 we know we're most familiar with the 10 right Imagine, to get into heaven, you got to keep the Ten Commandments. and It's not just in deed, but in thought and word. Perfectly your whole life. All right? If you're going to get into heaven. When Paul realized that, it wasn't just the outward. And what nailed him was that Tenth Commandment, coveting. Because he could say tell himself he had kept all the other ones. He had never committed adultery, never murdered anybody. Doing pretty well. But the Tenth One, the Holy Spirit nailed him coveting that happened in the heart and Paul said when I realized the law wasn't just to govern the outward actions of my life but the inward attitudes of my heart I was done because I knew I had hated I had lusted I had done a lot coveted in my heart and that's how the Holy Spirit nailed Saul and eventually he became a believer and we know him as Paul the Apostle but he went on to say in Philippians 3 I once thought these things were valuable, keeping, keeping the law, all these works I did. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For this, For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on our faith in Christ. Right? You see, guys, Paul came to understand what Jesus is teaching us right here in John 16, verse 10. About the kind of righteousness that God will receive up into heaven. Now look. When Jesus died on the cross, three days later he arose from the dead. Forty days later, after he spent 40 days with his disciples talking about things of the kingdom, they went as far as the Mount of Olives where he ascended into heaven, right? Remember how they were looking up uh, and he uh, he disappeared in a cloud, right? He was received by his Father. Uh, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me what? No more, because I've been accepted. I will be accepted by the Father. The father had not accepted him. He would have rejected him. Christ would have come back. You have to see me again, right? No. He said, I'm going to go to my father. And when he ascended to his father, the father received him. What did that communicate to all all of us? It communicated this, that the only righteousness that God would accept up into heaven is the righteousness of Christ. Don't ever forget that. Jesus Christ is the only person who has ever lived on this planet who is righteous enough to to get into heaven by his own sinless life. And and that's the point. You say, well, how righteous was Jesus? He was perfect. He never sinned. And so the only kind of person God will accept of into heaven is one who is as righteous and as perfect and as sinless as Jesus. Now, unbelievers would immediately jump on that and go, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. It's impossible for people to be perfect. I mean, nobody's ever lived who has never committed any sins. See, now now you're getting it. That's the whole point. See, a lot of people don't don't get that because they were never really taught that they have embraced a works righteousness uh, system of religion. If I do right things, I'm declared righteous, I go to heaven. Not understanding that nobody can live a perfect life. To get into heaven by your good works, you would have to be as perfect as Jesus, never sinning your entire life. Guys, it's impossible for me and you, but it's impossible for me to be as righteous as Jesus no matter how hard I try, no matter how many church services or masses I attend, no matter how many candles as a Catholic I could light or commandments I could keep. I will never live a perfect and sinless life here on the earth. None of us will. And if anybody thinks they are living a sinless life, and I met at least one guy who thought he did. He had, he told me I don't I don't sin. So y- y- you're not a sinner? Oh no, I never sin. I think I said something like, well then I need to bow down to you because you must be Jesus come back because I, I don't know of anybody who's never sinned. But obviously he was deluding himself. And John says in 1 John 1:8, if we say we have no sins, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. But the Bible declares, if I put my faith in Jesus then God imputes. Don't ever forget that word. It's a, it's an accounting term. Paul uses it 11 times in Romans chapter 4 alone. Check it out. It imputes, reckons, uh, uh, accounts, just different ways that... It, it's a, a, a term that means to put something to your account, like uh, if a rich uncle died, and in his will he left you a million bucks, and you received that million dollars, they would... Put it into your account, right? Probably electronically. And all of a sudden, it shows up in your account. You didn't earn it. It was given to you. You just simply received it. That's exactly what we're talking about. When we're talking about the righteousness of Christ. We can't be perfect and righteous on our own. So what God does is, if we put our faith in Christ, he transfers Christ's righteousness into our account. And now we are as righteous as Jesus Christ in the eyes of God. Positionally, practically, I still blow it. I'm still carnal. But as God sees me, I am in Christ positionally. That's very important. Because when I die, I am taken to heaven because I am in Christ. I'm not standing before God in my own righteousness. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Uh, but, But when I put my faith in Jesus, God imputes the righteousness of Christ to my account. Let me read you a few scriptures. Write down the references, okay? That talk about this. Uh, James 2, verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. This is all, all the way back in Genesis 15, verse 6. All right? Way back in the Old Testament, God was teaching that the kind of righteousness that gets a person into heaven is not earned, it's imputed. Abraham believed God. And the promises of God, you can read. Genesis 15, to see what that was all about. Basically, that uh, he believed God's promise of a coming Messiah, Savior. Romans 3, verses 21 and 2, and I'm reading these out of the NLT 2nd edition. Right, if I didn't tell you that. Um, Romans 3, verse 21, Paul said, But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are, Jew or Gentile. It's all by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. I'll give you one more, Romans 10, verses 1 to 4. I encourage you to read. Um, Romans 4, Romans, read the whole book of Romans, okay? But I'm thinking of chapters 4 and 10. Well, it's also good. All right, but Romans 10, verses 1 to 4. Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. Paul was a Jew who loved his countrymen. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with Himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. Religion. Religion. You're either saved by grace or you're saved by your works. And in chapter 4 of Romans, Paul says they're mutually exclusive. Okay? Verse 4, For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. Very important. And so Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin, of sin because they don't believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, and thirdly, of judgment, of judgment. Verse 11, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. This is a little more difficult to understand, okay? But here Jesus calls the devil the ruler of this world. When did Satan become the ruler of this world? In the Garden of Eden. When God made Adam and Eve, gave them the garden and said, basically, um, just watch over it. Everything will bring forth after its kind. You can eat of all the fruit bearing trees in the garden except for one tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't eat the fruit of that tree lest you die, right? Satan comes along in the form of a serpent, tempts Eve to say, look, you're not going to surely die. God doesn't want you to have... The same power that he's learned how to have. Uh you can go back, and I think last week we talked about this or the week before. Uh, but uh, God wants you to keep wants to keep you Eve from Godhood. Okay? He knows that in the day that you eat of the fruit of that tree, your eyes will be open, you'll be enlightened, you'll achieve Godhood. Okay? Um, so Eve thought, well, it does look like all the other trees. The fruit looks nice. So she ate and gave to Adam, and he ate and they fell. What they didn't realize at that moment was there was a transaction that took place, a legal transaction, that they turned over the world to the devil who became the world's new owner and man's new master. Satan took over this world. Jesus didn't contest that when he took him up to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment's time. and said, all these are mine. I can give them to whoever I want. I'll give them to you, Jesus, if you'll bow down and worship me. He said, get behind me Satan." It's written in the word of God, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only. Shall you serve, right? But Jesus didn't contest that. He didn't say, Satan, you big fat liar, you're on the world. He knew it was true. It was a legal transaction. But Satan was a usurper. He was never intended by God to rule this world. But it's true. It happened. And John says it in 1 John 5:19. We know that we belong to God as Christians, but the whole world lies under the control of the evil one. However, at the cross, Jesus judged Satan and his demons and the entire world system. You see, Satan was a usurper. And so Jesus came to pay the price to judge the devil. To judge the devil. Now hold on to this, because we're going to bring it all together at the end, okay? But in Colossians 2.15, Paul the Apostle talks about how Jesus disarmed principalities and power, Satan and his angels and demons. And he made a public spectacle of them, of them over it, triumphing over them in his cross. And, and Paul was drawing on something that was very well known in those days about how a Roman general, when he took his troops and marched into an area and conquered the people of that area, they would come marching back to Rome with all the prisoners in tow, all the conquered uh, uh, foes. And they would give them a parade. Uh, The Roman government would throw them a parade. And they would march all these uh, these captives, these, these enemies that have been defeated, through the streets of Rome. And Paul says Jesus Christ essentially did that when he conquered over Satan and his demons at Calvary's cross and has now put them on display in the sense that they're defeated. They are defeated. They were judged at Calvary's cross. Guys, listen. It's difficult for the people of this world, the world we live in, to understand that we're living in a judge world, a condemned world. I've heard many people over the years say that they don't need Jesus Christ because they believe that, although they're not perfect, at least they admit that, they feel they're still good enough to make it into heaven. They feel that when they stand before God in the day of judgment, they're going to have their quote-unquote day in court. Maybe you've heard this. And I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to present my case. Right? And I'm going to, all the evidence I'm going to bring out of all the good things I've done, I'm a good person. And all I got to do is show God all the wonderful things I've done. And he's going to say, yeah, you're right. You know, you are a good person. Come on in. You know, you are a good person. And that's how they think. They don't realize that they're not going to get a day in court to make their case. The case has already been decided. That took place in the Garden of Eden. When God pronounced the curse, it was God's way of saying the human race is guilty. There is no trial. We're guilty before God, right? Very important that people understand that, that um, the case has already been decided. Turn to John 3. Uh, You all know this passage but let me read it to you again because Jesus is talking about this very thing and of course we all know John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in Jesus wouldn't have to perish in hell but would have uh, everlasting life in heaven okay we know that he goes on though, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved He who believes in him in Christ is not condemned, but he who does not believe, listen, is condemned already. Condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Guys, all the people of this world, unbelievers, are condemned already. Again, it happened in the Garden of Eden, where God pronounced the human race guilty. Now, what does man do? Well, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, and their eyes were opened, and they saw that they were naked. Before that, they were innocent like uh, toddlers. They you know, they were naked, but it didn't, you know. Little kids, they don't know they're naked. You, you know, your, your, your best friend, you got his little guy and your little daughter, maybe they're a year and a half old and playing in the dirt all day on a summer day and you throw them in the bath and together and just give them a bath, right? They don't think anything of it. But, and that's how man was before the fall. After the fall, his eyes were opened. He knew he was naked. So what did he do? What was the first thing man did to cover the shame of his nakedness, of his sin? He took fig leaves, right? Sewed them together and covered Adam and Eve. They covered their nakedness. God appeared and said, look, that's not going to do. So God took a couple animals, slew the animals, took the skins and covered Adam and Eve. Why? Because animal skins cover a person better than fig leaves? No, because God was communicating right up front that you will never cover the shame of your nakedness, your sin, through the works of your hands. That's religion. I don't know if you realize this, that was the first time religion entered the human race. Where man thought through the works of his hands he could cover his own guilt before God. And God says, no, it's going to take a blood sacrifice. And so he killed two innocent animals and he took their skins and covered Adam and Eve to communicate It is only through the shedding of blood that your sins can be forgiven. The basis for the gospel, right? Later on, Isaiah would make this even more graphic. In Isaiah 64, verse 6, he said, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all of our works of righteousness are like filthy rags in the sight of God. But he used something very graphic in the Hebrew. He said, All of our works... The works of our hands designed to cover our shame to make us righteous in God's eyes they're nothing but used menstrual cloths in the eyes of God and a woman during her time of the month uh, she was unclean and God used some very graphic language to communicate a very important truth when you try to offer God a religion he's not just a little put off he's deeply offended because his son the price and you're trying to substitute something that you do in place of what Christ did guys we live in a world that's already been judged and like a guilty man waiting on death row for his execution that's where the human race finds itself. so they don't realize that they still think they're going to get their day in court they're like a guilty man or woman on death row waiting to be executed but at Calvary's cross Jesus condemned he judged the devil the devil who had us in bondage and and, uh, Jesus provided a way for condemned humanity we're all condemned but Jesus through what he did on Calvary's cross provided a way by which we might receive a pardon you weren't here last week go online we spent a lot of time developing that idea that guilty sinners and we're guilty I don't deny that I'm guilty. Yet God, through Jesus Christ, offered me a pardon. And by his grace, I received it. And my sins have been washed away. Now that's bad news for some people. Good news for others. What do you mean? Well, it's bad news for those people who are living and rebellion against God because a day of reckoning is coming. A day of reckoning is coming. People don't realize that. People in rebellion should take note if the... If the God of this world, the ruler of this world, Satan, has been judged at Calvary's cross. Listen, so have his uh, subjects. But God, in his mercy, is giving them time to repent and to receive his pardon. Remember what Paul said in Acts 17, where he's talking to, I forgot what where he was, um, Corinth maybe, or no, not Cor- He was somewhere though, Athens possibly, and he was talking about how God, in the past, before the gospel really was being presented, allowed pagans a certain amount of um, slack. Not that they could get into heaven by their paganism. He just didn't hold them as accountable to those as those who knew the truth. With knowledge comes responsibility, right? Look at what Paul said in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. He said, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in the early times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sin and to turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man Jesus, whom he has appointed, uh, and he proved to everyone uh, who this is by raising him from the dead. In other words, Jesus Christ is God's son, and God proved it by raising him from the dead, and someday Jesus Christ is going to sit in judgment of every unbeliever on the planet. We all know judgment's coming, right? Uh, Hebrews, what, 927, it is appointed for a man to die once, and then what? comes the judgment that judgment for unbelievers happens at the great white throne judgment uh revelation 20 verses 11 to 15 where every unbeliever is going to be who has died or is still living if they died they'll be resurrected of course and they're all going to stand before jesus christ and give an account people think they're getting away with evil they they think that they're sinning if they even call it sin with impunity we have a lot of politicians who are doing some of the most heinous, wicked things. And they, they think they're, they're the greatest thing in, in the world. They don't realize that God is keeping track of every sin, He is writing it in their ledger. Uh, uh, um, Revelation 20 says At one point, when they stand before the Lord, the books are going to be open. Books, plural. Who, what are they? One is the Word of God, God's commandments, God's standard, and the other is their ledger, Colossians 2. Their ledger is the book, quote-unquote, that God writes down every sin that an unbeliever thinks, says, or does. And the books are open. Here's what God said, here's what you did. You want to get them by your works? Let's look at your works. And he parades out all their sins. Every person who is an unbeliever is going to have to stand before God someday and give an accounting. Even as um, the writer of the Hebrews said that all things are open and naked in the eyes of him to whom we must someday give an account. You can either stand before Jesus someday in your own sins, clothe in your own works of righteousness, or you can stand in front of Jesus clothed in his works pure white robes of righteousness. That's up to you. It's up to you. I just know this. You can't hide anything from God. Your whole life is an open book. He knows everything. Again, the beautiful thing, though, by my believing in Jesus Christ, and when you believe in Jesus Christ, is that all the negative things we ever did, all the sins, all the wor- the sins in thought, word, and de- deed, or blotted out, erased, forgiven by the blood of Christ. So that when God opens my ledger at the bottom, marked in red, it says paid in full, which on the cross Jesus spoke. Remember before he bowed his head, dismissed the Spirit, he said, It is finished. Greek is the telestai, which could be translated paid in full. My ledger has been marked paid in full through the blood of Jesus Christ. Yours could be too. If you've already accepted Him, it is already. Guys, so the fact that the ruler of this world has been judged is bad news for all who are living in rebellion against God because there's a day of judgment coming. Now, let me just end with this, okay? Because we're talking this morning mostly to unbelievers. Is there anything in this passage that I can glean for my life? Yes. Absolutely, okay? For unbelievers who reject Christ, eternal judgment's coming. Satan has been judged. If you're following him, you're judged. And someday you're going to wind up in the place where Satan is going to spend eternity, which is hell, which wasn't even made for man, Jesus said. It was made for the devil and his angels, but if you follow the rebel to where he's going to spend eternity, uh, you'll be there too. But listen, not it's not only good news that when I put my faith in Christ, I'm going to be accepted into heaven because I'm in Christ and God receives his righteousness, and if I'm in Christ, I'm received up into heaven. But listen, Something that Jesus said in verse 11 that uh, affects us right now on this earth. It's implied. Maybe not clearly stated, but it's implied. Something very important. When Jesus said that the ruler of this world has been judged, that has practical implications for us who are believers right now. What do I mean? Well, Satan is the ruler of this world, okay? We know that he controls it. But at Calvary, Satan was judged, and his power, listen, his power over people's lives was broken, listen, for anyone who received Jesus as their savior. There is hope for all those whose lives have been lived under the horrible bondage of sin and Satan. There is freedom in Christ. Freedom from heroin, from cocaine, from alcohol, freedom from, the, uh, from emotional scars like sexual abuse or other very debilitating emotions. There is, there is freedom from these things. I have seen it over and over again, guys, in 40 years of ministry. People whose lives were completely devastated, maybe through their own doing or through somebody else, like a father who had abused a daughter, and her life is just devastated into her adulthood. I have seen over and over again how people whose lives were so broken that no professional could put it back together. They'd gone to the therapists and the psychologists and nobody could put their life back together like Pastor Mike McIntosh. Such a drug addict, Mike just retired from being a pastor in California, still served the Lord. But he was so strung out on drugs and LSD that he literally lost his mind. Nobody could put it back together. They all wrote Mike off. This guy's too far gone. He'll never be normal again. He's He's gone mentally. I could get into what he was doing. It, it, he just was so far gone, he wasn't even himself at all. And then somebody brought him to Calvary Chapel back in the late 60s. And Pastor Chuck was teaching and shared the gospel. And then said, look, if there's anybody here who wants to receive Jesus as your Savior, go back to the prayer room and the elders will pray for you. Mike went back there, the guys laid hands on him, prayed for him to receive Jesus Christ. And Mike said, I felt like a bolt of electricity shot through my body at that instant. He says, and instantly, God restored my mind. He completely restored my mind. I was in my right mind. And God went on to call Mike to be a pastor, and Mike has been all over the world sharing the gospel. Nobody can understand that. Nobody can, can give you an explanation. Many people have gotten saved because Saul of Tarsus suddenly becomes a Christian. A guy going 100 miles an hour against Christianity and the next day he's going 100 miles an hour in the opposite direction for Christ what happened we know what happened he hit a brick wall called Jesus (laughs) knocked him down opened his eyes spun him around and shot him out the other way as fast as he could go the Bible says anyone who belongs to Jesus Christ has become a new person the old life is gone a new life has begun Satan can no longer rule over me. His power has been broken. A stronger power than the devil is now at work in my life and in your life if you're a Christian. I'm not saying that all Christians walk in victory. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians, even though God has set them free, they still live like they're in bondage to the devil. Why? Maybe they don't read the Bible. Maybe they don't go to a church that teaches the Bible. I don't know. It reminds me, of though, after the Civil War when the North beat the South and President Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing the slaves, right? Uh, If you read history, you realize that a lot of these black slaves continued in their slavery. Either they didn't know what the president had done in declaring them free, or they didn't believe it. And so they kept on living like slaves, even though they were now free men and women. It's a lot of Christians like that. At Calvary's Cross, Jesus signed what we might call a spiritual emancipation proclamation. We were set free. We're no longer the slaves of Satan. It's a tragedy when Christians walk in bondage to the devil when they've been set free. Well, I I don't know how to be set free, but it's by faith. Trust Christ. He won the victory. You don't have to say, God, I can't do it. You can't do it. Just trust Christ to give you the grace to live his life through you, right? 1 John 4, verse 4. But you belong to God, dear children. You have already won a victory because the Spirit who lives in you is greater than the Spirit who lives in the world. Don't ever forget that, right? Look, we're done. The Holy Spirit, though, convicts people of the reality that there is hope for a new life in Christ, that there is freedom from the bondage they lived in for many years to the devil in their flesh. Again, alcohol, drugs, whatever, right? But that that freedom, the Spirit is convicted, and that freedom though, only comes through Jesus Christ, who at Calvary's cross has judged the ruler of this world and broken his hold over all of our lives as believers. As children of God, we don't have to live anymore in bondage to the power of darkness, in the grip of Satan, through Jesus, we have been set free. Now live like it. Live like it. Your birthright is freedom, right? For freedom, Christ has set us free. But if you go back to the old things that Christ set you free from, you will, Romans 6, put yourself back under bondage to those things. Let me close by reading you something Max Lucado wrote. Most of you have heard the name Max Lucado. He's a, a Christian author, writes a lot of devotionals. He's a good writer. He said, and I quote, talking on this whole subject, and then we'll close. He said, think of it this way. Sin has put you in prison. Sin locked you behind the bars of guilt and shame and deception and fear. Sin did nothing but shackle you to the wall of misery. Then Jesus came and paid your bail. He served your time. He satisfied the penalty and set you free. Christ died, and when you you cast your lot in with him, when you put your faith in him, your old life, your old self died too. The only way to be set free from the prison of sin is to serve its penalty. In this case, the penalty is death. Someone has to die, either you or a heaven-sent substitute. You cannot leave prison unless there is a death. But that death has occurred at Calvary. And when Jesus died, you died to sin's claim on your life. You are free. He said, near the city of São José dos Campos in Brazil, there is a remarkable facility. 20 years ago the brazilian government turned a prison over to two christians the institution was named humata okay uh, humata and the plan was to run it on christian principles with the exception of two full-time employee staff all the work is done by inmates families outside the prison adopt an inmate to work with and during and after his term chuck colson visited the prison and made this report, quoting Chuck Colson now. He said, and I quote, quote, When I visited Humata, I found the inmates smiling, particularly the murderer who held the keys that opened the gate and let us in. Wherever I walked, I saw men at peace. I saw clean living areas, people working industriously. Walls were decorated with biblical sayings from Psalms and Proverbs. My guide escorted me to the notorious prison cell once used for torture, torturing prisoners. Today, he told me, that block houses only a single inmate. As we reached the end of a long concrete corridor, he put the key in the lock. He paused and asked, are you sure you want to go in? Of course, I replied impatiently. I've been in isolation cells all over the world. Slowly he swung open the massive door, and I saw the prisoner in that punishment cell, a crucifix, beautifully carved by the Humata inmates, the prisoner Jesus hanging on a cross. He's doing time for the rest of us, my guide said softly. Jesus Christ paid your debt. He's given you a pardon. As we said last week, a pardon will do you no good if you don't receive it all the blood that jesus jesus shed on calvary's cross will do you no good if you reject it the holy spirit is convicting you of sin of righteousness and judgment he's convicting you because he loves you god loves you and wants you to be saved but rebels can't be saved you have to bow the knee to christ you have to submit to him receive him as your savior as your master And when you do, his blood is placed to your account and your ledger is marked paid in full. The tragedy of hell will be that millions upon millions upon millions of people will inhabit hell. They didn't have to be there. Everyone in hell didn't have to be there. And as I said before, I'll close with this. I believe some of the weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth for all eternity will be based on the idea that as people suffer in hell, they are haunted with the idea I didn't have to be here. I didn't have to be here. Why didn't I listen to that goofy Christian who kept trying to give me tracks at work? Why didn't I listen to my wife who was a churchgoer and Bible thumper, I thought, tried to reach me. Don't make that your testimony. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, if the Spirit is convicting you right now, don't put it off. Accept Christ right now as your Lord and Savior. And he will come inside. He'll make you a brand new person from the inside out. It all starts when you receive him as your Lord and Savior. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. And, of course, your word is your truth that you've given to us, promises, many of them that we can receive lord and the greatest of all is that you died for sinners and want to receive them into your kingdom as your family father we just pray for all those who are here this morning or watching online that have not received jesus christ as their savior that right now lord uh, as you're speaking to them they would fall on their knees and say lord jesus i'm a sinner I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead. I believe you're God in human form. I receive you as my Savior. Put your spirit within me. Transform my life from the inside out that I might serve you. We just thank you, Lord, for your great and precious promises. And we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.